Hello, everyone. Today's Swan Dive is a delightful conversation with the writer Imbi Neem, the author of The Spill, a book we featured in our most recent episode 19. We were using Zoom to record, so the technology wasn't smooth sailing the whole way, but it was a wonderful chat. You will hear Imbi is so generous uh, with the process of her writing and insights into the characters in this great book. So enjoy. Imbi, I've been really looking forward to welcoming you to the Diving In podcast and to talk to you about your novel, The Spill. I think I might just give our listeners a little bit of background. The Spill is your debut novel, but you are by no means a debut writer. This is not your debut manuscript. You are an awarded blogger. You were the recipient of the 2019 Henry Handel Richardson Fellowship at Varuna for excellence in short story writing. You've won prizes at the Newcastle Short Story Awards, the Burundara Literary Awards, and you were shortlisted for the 2018 Peter Carey Short Story Award. And now, of course, with this novel, The Spill, you have won the Penguin Literary Prize. This just must be so affirming and confidence-inducing as a, as a writer. Absolutely. And I, I think writing such a, a solitary pursuit, so isolated, it's just you and your characters for so long, and then, you know, you slowly start to show it to other people and, you know, you get your feedback. And there's been plenty of times along my own writer's journey where I really thought that my work would not see any other readers beyond my immediate friends and my mother. So to have this kind of validation, I was just reflecting in an interview that I've always been a girly swatch. Like for me at school, getting A's was really super important. And one of the things that I've been most disappointed about in adult life is the lack of A's. Nobody gives you an A. I want an A for the dinner I made or the A for the parking job I just did. So to win the Penguin Literary Prize is like this A plus from the university writing. And um, so such a huge thrill, such a huge thrill. Yeah, no, that I can imagine that. You're, I've never thought of it like that, actually. We, yeah, we really don't get continuous accolades, do we, for the small and large things in our lives. So that it's just magnificent. And I imagine that it would give you a lot of confidence as a writer moving forward. It does, but I think it's a double-edged sword too because when you're writing in isolation in your little kind of unpublished bubble, you're really not thinking about the market and you're not thinking about what readers are going to like or not like. You're just writing the story. And now I think with my next book, and I have two other manuscripts which I hope to return to and I have an idea for a fourth one, I think there's that there is that sort of like, well, can I write something different? Do I have to write something like The Spill? If readers responded to this, does that need to be in the next book? I think I can already anticipate and knowing myself that I'm going to do a little bit of that and I'm going to have to work really hard to push those voices out of my head and just write. Yes, I was speaking with an author I think you know, Louise Allen, who is also in Western Australia, and she said to me that with each book you're starting from scratch again and it doesn't really matter of the success of the previous novel. You're starting with a blank canvas again. Yeah, and and actually Louise Allen just this very day extended a sympathetic ear for when I am writing my next book. <laughs> so, <laughs> I <think she's>, <laughs> so that's quite coincidental. But, yeah, I can see that. And if I've learned anything in the pathway to publication, nothing's a given. And I've I've had friends who have been published once or twice or a number of times who have then had their, you know, fourth or fifth book turned down by their publisher. So you just... 
it's such an uncertain past that we tread. Yeah, absolutely. Was was writing something you were always going to do? Yes. Yeah. And I, I wrote a short story or I thought it was a book because it felt so long when I was five and it was um, published. I spent my first three years of um, education were at Perth College. It's the only time I've been to a private school and I got the prize for the year for grade one, grade two and grade three um, for any Perth College people listening. (laughs) But I did have this book that I had written, published in the 1976 school magazine. Looking back, it was a sentence, but, you know, what a sentence. Um, But... (laughs) Like I really, I really remember that feeling, that feeling of achievement and pride and seeing my story in print. Like it was, it's actually like one of my clearest memories of that early sort of childhood time. So I think I've always kind of known that I would write in some way or another. I didn't know it would take me almost 50 years to get published, but I'm taking it. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to turn this down and say, oh, it should have happened earlier. And, you know, I certainly did that when I hit 35, I had that kind of really sad moment of knowing that I would never win the Vogel. (laughs) But that's the only time that I've actually had a sense of a shelf life. I mean, you know, we know that Elizabeth Jolly wrote late in life and, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, trying to make it in Hollywood. So I have known that I've got I've had time to do this. Of course, being a mum and working, finding that time to do it has been the biggest challenge, really. Yes. Well, we might we might chat about that in a minute. Were, were you a big reader as a child as well? I suspect I know the answer to that one. Yeah, I was a huge reader and my stepmother played a huge role in sort of drip feeding me books and you know, not always the most appropriate books. Um, she did give me the story of O when I was about 15 or 16 and I think uh, <laughs> I still bear those scars. But, you know, books were always a huge thing and, and to always have a book, I always had a world to return to at the end of each day. That felt very important to me. Yes, so a safe place. Yeah, a safe place. Yeah. Um, Virginia and I are both really keen short story readers and I think some people might think that writing a short story would be easier than writing a novel but they're such different beasts and crafting the perfect short story is such an art. It is a huge art. Like it requires a completely different set of muscles as a writer. I always describe short stories as kind of you're, you're a sprinter and when we were writing novels or long form, it's more of a marathon. So it's a different kind of, you have to, I wrote short stories when I was at university. When I say short stories, we're talking three. <laughs> and then I had a long period of not writing at all. And then I started blogging. And through blogging, I began to build up that muscle, just a general writing muscle, which allowed me to write in very short, sharp bursts whenever yes. I had the opportunity. And that my children were quite little. So I was really writing in, in the cracks of my life. And then I embarked on the long form thing. And when I had written The Spill, the first draft of The Spill, and I got to this point where I was like, I am really trying to get published. I need to reconnect with stories. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't written one for 25 years, but wow. I just competitions and prizes. You know, there's the girly swat thing coming in. Um, but if I get a few sort of small wins and start to, you know, maybe a, a bit of profile building, you know, in kind of more cynical terms, but really just reconnect with the love of writing. So I actually turned back to short stories because you're right, they do require sort of like at a very 
sentence or even word level, you, you, no word wasted, no character wasted. You, you just haven't got that room to stretch out like you do with a novel. So, yeah. yeah, so I did turn my hand back to short stories and was astounded when I started to actually get listed for things and winning a few prizes. And by the end of 2018, I had decided that 2019 was going to be entirely about short stories. I was going to write a collection. That was going to be my pathway to publication. I planned to do a collection for the Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Award because there have been a number of short story collections, including on foreign soil, Maxine Neva Clarkson, um, Melanie Cheng's Australia Day. And so I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to try and do. And then I get this email from Meredith Kerno at Penguin saying, you've been shortlisted. And that brought the manuscripts back on, onto my desk. Yes, yeah, for the longer form. Just an extraordinary process, really. Uh, maybe we could just chat a little bit about the book itself. This wonderful story, uh, MB, The Spill, opens with these two young girls, Samantha and Nicole. They've been out with their mother, Tina, on a road trip in country Western Australia and there's an accident, the car rolls over. And this accident becomes this marker in their lives. It's such a powerful idea that what happens from that point on, you know, the different understanding that each sister sort of carries with them of the circumstances surrounding the accident, but also of their parents' marriage, their mother's alcoholism, and their inner dialogue, the way it's sort of always traced back to that point is that something that uh, I'm a sister myself and I very well remember sitting around the dining table uh, and hearing uh, stories recounted of our family which didn't accord with my understanding of the facts. Is this something that you experienced yourself? Yeah, I think. well, I think we all do. There's this kind of fictionalisation of our memories that we do sometimes consciously but most of the time unconsciously. We sort of just conveniently sort of edit out some details and make those memories sort of fit the narratives that we tell about ourselves and our lives. Mm. And that just happens so clearly in that family setting with those kind of, yeah, you're right, those the family stories. And I've certainly experienced times where one of the family stories has, which is haha amusing, has actually been a really painful thing in my life. And I think in the spill, the world of the spill, the Pritikin scone reference is definitely a good example of that because it's become this family joke yes but actually is a symbol of a really painful memory in samantha the character's sort of life you know with a failed sleepover so i guess yeah i was i was really interested in exploring how that experience and memory can kind of diverge from each other and also how experience even at the time can be quite different for different people you might both be there but you experience things through your own lens, and I think that's so fascinating. I think it's just so deeply interesting. Yeah, no, it really is. And how one family member is perhaps more careless with the memory than you might be and, and how that pain and hurt develops without people actually communicating about it. It's it, Yeah, look, it's very strong. And I love the way you built the layers of misunderstanding in the family. It was very painful at times, but that it was warm and it was funny. And, and I think there's this sort of compounding effect of not addressing an elephant in a room and sooner or later there's a herd of elephants in the room and it's almost too late. Yeah, but I also think one thing that I sort of like explored in the book is it, maybe it isn't too late. Maybe we still can stop 
and take a fresh look at the past or or maybe take time to find out what someone else's version of that memory is to maybe shape it into something that ultimately might be more positive or kind of involve forgiveness or, yeah, more hopeful. I'm ultimately, even though I've written about some quite dark subjects, topics, I remain very hopeful about people and their ability to heal each other and themselves and I hope that the book reflects that hope. Oh, it, it most certainly does. It most certainly does. As I said, it was painful but it was warm and touching and funny and then, yes, the, you know, you were rooting for them. You just wanted them to have those conversations and, and yeah, there was definitely hope and ultimately understanding which, which was lovely. Why did you set the novel in Western Australia in particular? Was there a reason for that? That's a really good question. You know, I always feel like I am at heart a Perth girl. And I did this car journey with my um, husband five years ago when we were both in Perth and um, he was there for a conference and I went and joined with him and then gave him this kind of like royal tour of the sites from my childhood yeah. um, and my misspent And we hired a car and I drove from Fremantle all the way up to Scarborough Beach and then we kind of cut inland, went through Dog Swamp and then sort of into North Perth and that, around Mount Lawley and ended up at the Queen's Pub. And it was just this, such a magical day. I have such clear memories of that day and it just felt so wonderful to share that with him. And I guess that car journey, it's another car journey since, you know, the, the accident that the girls are in based on yes. my own childhood accident. So two car journeys are affecting this book or inspiring this book. But, yeah, so then when I, I had Samantha, one of the characters, do pretty much the same journey, I drew so heavily from that. And I think you know, when you revisit a place, you know, I haven't lived in Perth since 1992. My first husband's family is still largely in Perth, so we did visit a lot and then mm. certainly in the last 10 years I've only been back once. Sorry, Perth. Um, <laughs> I hope to come again. But, yeah, it still stays with me. It's part of my dreaming and the formation of me as a, a person, just such a significant place to me. Yeah, okay, good, good. Well, we're, we're happy to have you back. Uh, Virginia and I spoke recently with author Suzanne Daniel and, and she spoke about the idea of characters presenting themselves to her. Is, is that experience, your experience with these sisters or with other characters in the book? Are you creating them or do they sort of present themselves to you and sort of take shape for you? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, both sisters are actually based on me. Not all of them, all of their experience by any means, just to reassure you for people <laughs> who have read the book. So it started with that. Like I, I examined with this car accident from my youth uh, when I was 10, I thought about how that changed me as a person and that I really felt was two ways in which I was very different after that. And one was, was highly anxious about things around me and just needed to know the plan, always needed to know the plan and kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown control freak, but I have some aspects of that. So that was definitely Samantha. And then there was also this fear that came out of, of that car accident. I felt like if I expressed how I felt or what I wanted, that somehow that would have this chain reaction and end up in some kind of disaster. So I remember having this about a, six months after the car accident, having a full-blown panic attack on a coach going from Newcastle to wow. Sydney uh, on a school excursion where I was just so worried about the bus falling over. I don't know why. I just had this idea of it just falling on its side. And it really had this huge impact on me. So I took those two things and I split them 
between the two sisters and then started to write into them. And there is this point where they do take over. So I don't feel like they came to me fully formed, but in that kind of writing process, they get their own momentum and they start doing things which you go, of course, Samantha would do that. Of course, Nicole would say that. And then with the other characters in the book, the sort of supporting cast, they were like that too. And they got to the point with some of those characters, when I came to a scene where I was writing them into the scene, it was so much joy because I'm like, oh, I love this guy. Or I love Tina. I'm just like, oh, I just want to hang out with them all day. So yeah. it became a real delight. So I've said a couple of times that, you know, in a way that these characters, they end up being more my creation than my actual children. My children, there's so many sort of external, you know, yeah. factors that affect who they are and they've got their own experience. They're on their own way in the world. But those characters, you know, yeah, I feel incredibly proud of them. I'm not proud of the way I've written them, but I just, I, I feel this really deep connection with yes. them, which is Kind of sounds like me and my imaginary friends, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, but I imagine that you, you know, you in, you inhabit this time with them, and you're growing with them, and you know, and obviously you're instrumental in their growth. But yeah, I imagine it, it's a very intimate relationship, a, a writer and and their characters. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Do, do you collect characters and store them away? Do you? come across characters that you're observing when you're out and about and you you store them away for later are you or, or do you remember them do they sort of come back to you when appropriate or see I think it's not characters per se I collect stories yeah and I, I kind of often describe myself as being a bit of a bowerbird I you know collect blue shiny things and yeah. store them away and it's not so much the character, I've never sort of kind of thought, oh, I'm going to base this character on that man I met at that party. Mm. But, you know, I'll start writing them and I'll remember the thing that the man at the party did. I don't know if that makes any sense, no, but there's just a slight difference there. So people's actions and people's words and people's experiences and people's sort of like, yeah, I, I just think people in general are just endlessly fascinating yes. and I like to create someone and put them in a situation then sort of test them and see how they're going to respond it's it's yeah you kind of play god yeah. <laughs> I love the image of you as a bower bird I think that's that's a, a gorgeous image I really do I guess that takes me to a question that we've had from one of our listeners of the podcast and she says everyone who went to Mount Lawley High School wants to know is the guy in the spill in the 96 FM, I should say that's a radio station in Perth, in the 96 FM sweatshirt, is that John Lamb? <laughs> that is a really good illustration of, of my previous answer because the character himself is not John Lamb, but the sweatshirt is definitely John Lamb. So mm -hmm. I have put that in there for John Lamb, who was my maths buddy and caused me to get a B for maths oh. in year 11 and 12. But this is kind of my revenge. <laughs> but I've actually been really delighted and a shout-out to the Mount Lawley Senior High School friends, uh, the graduating class of 1987, like 17,000 years ago. They've been so excited. They've actually formed their own Facebook page to talk about the book oh. and all the references. They've been sending me photos of Inverness Crescent in Menorah and asking me which number house did Nicole live at. <laughs> and I actually did live in a share house on Inverness Crescent. So I've consulted with one of my previous housemates and we've pretty much decided we know which one it is. But also there was someone from school who made a playlist, who made a Spotify 
playlist based on songs that were mentioned in in the spill. Oh, how fantastic. Could not have imagined, like, when we were back at high school, that this day would come and someone would be making a playlist based on my yeah. published novel, The World. Huh? And I'm now going to look I'm going to look for that uh, playlist on Spotify as soon as I finish this <laughs> interview. That's fantastic. Imbi, the book is very layered and it's sort of revealed to the readers layer by layer or rather maybe piece by piece. And the chapters shift between Samantha and Nicole's differing perspective, past and present, and we learn, you know, their inner thoughts and their feelings and their own versions about what was going on in their family. And then those chapters are given context by chapters you've interspersed, which are written in the third person, and they give the reader an insight into sort of maybe significant events or pieces of their lives. I wonder if you'd share some of your insights about the process of writing that story because it seems a very complex process and yet it reads so effortlessly. I mean, I would have to have flowcharts and diagrams and mapping it all out. I mean, it's extraordinary and yet it reads so well. That is a huge, like when people describe the book as readable, I know people with more literary kind of aspirations would find that sort of like, oh, shudder. But I am thrilled because the amount of work that went into that structure, there wasn't a flowchart, there was a spreadsheet and that's how I managed it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and I did the spreadsheet for two reasons. One was so I could look at the chapters in chronological order, like in the order that they happened in the girls' lives, but then I could also look at it in the order that it happens in the novel and also so I could, yeah, and also track people's ages and where they were living at the time. So that was because there's a lot of movement and a lot of characters. But the other thing was to make sure that each chapter either introduced, progressed or um, resolved a tiny mystery. So because the first draft, I'm going to call it, it was shambolic. (laughs) I gave it to my beta readers. I knew it was underbaked, but I just kind of like I needed to test the idea of having back and forth and in my mind it was like yes I knew it was like this big jigsaw puzzle that I was asking the reader to put together anyway their response was I have no idea what's going on (laughs) or where I am in the story am I in the present am I in the past and that was when the whole book was in the third person yeah okay so after initially deciding that I would never touch the manuscript again one of the beta readers who's Carly Napier a very wonderful writer in her own right she was the person who kept coming back to me saying, what are you doing about the spill? And I was like, eh, too hard, too hard. And in the course of our conversation, I tried to explain the sort of structure idea I'd had and I'm like, oh, it's like this big jigsaw puzzle. And she went, why haven't you mentioned the jigsaw in the actual book? Like why is that not a motif? And I was like, I felt so stupid. I just thought, oh, 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 yeah, of course. Like why haven't I helped the reader understand what's Mm. happening to them. So now there is very clearly a jigsaw which gets spilled on the ground and then we start to see these pieces. So that was a real breakthrough moment plus turning the present-day chapters into um, first person so that there was a bit more differentiation between the present day and the past. And then the third thing was about those threads, those threads of mysteries, just making sure that every past chapter was working hard enough to be there, that it was connected, had little kind of tendrils joining it with the, you know, enough of the rest of the story because I think initially there were a couple of chapters which were me just writing stuff and it really kind of could 
be easily tossed out without sort of having an impact on the larger story. So I just really wanted to make sure that everything was sort of feeding into that bigger story and making the reader or helping the reader understand more about who these two women, Samantha and Nicole, were and why they'd become the way that they were. I can see as a framework it's extraordinarily complex project but it did not read that way so absolutely loved it and I'm look I am someone who is on the record in the podcast as sometimes struggling with multiple perspectives and shifting and it just it was fabulous oh well high praise high praise thank you (laughs) as a writer do you sit down with fixed ideas of what you'll achieve in a day I mean you've talked about writing in the cracks of your you know existing life your work and your children but now do you sit down and have very set habits? I mean, are you a Peter Carey who, because by virtue of the support he has, he can just sit and write all day? Or Look, I, I don't think I could ever sit and write all day. I had a two-week residency at Varuna last year, which was thanks to the Henry Handel Richardson Society. And, oh, my goodness, you know, two whole weeks of writing, but could I write all day, every day? No, I could not. I'm so used to writing these brief little bursts that, while I did, you know, write much more than I normally would, I needed to break the day up with walks and, you know, sort of thinking about lunch and there was a lot of purchasing of Danishes in the town of Katoomba um, (laughs) that I focused a lot of energy on, um, my daily Danish. But I think my writerly routine really is just it's centres around a word count mm. and it's a very low word count. Mm. So when, when I'm entering the world of a novel and starting a new manuscript, it is 250 words a day, which is actually yeah. not much. No. Sometimes it can feel a lot. <laughs> Sometimes it can feel like you're drawing blood from a stone, but it's 250 words. And, of course, if I have more time, I'll write more. That's my goal. And the minute I'm able to achieve that, I'm able to give myself permission to get on with the rest of my day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Because for me, if I don't have that sense of achievement, again, we're going back to my report card and the A's, um, (laughs) if I don't have that sense of achievement, I really hate everybody and I hate everything in my life that is not the book that I want to be writing so I just Mm. yeah so I do that and then there's always a point and I'm sure you know other writers say similar things where you writing and fits and starts it's not flowing but then there's this point where you're just immersed you're inside the world of a novel and that is the best feeling of all when all you're thinking about is the novel so I might increase that word count to 500 words around that time but but yeah so the main thing is to have that daily contact with the work so then all that time that you're not writing, which for me represents a significant percentage of my day, then I'm always thinking about it. It's there at the forefront of my mind when I'm doing the dishes, when I'm stuck in traffic, when I'm in a really boring meeting at work, when I'm listening to my children talk to me about something that I'm really not interested in, but I do love you kids. Um, then my mind will be just half will be focusing on what I'm doing because I just don't want people to think I'm driving recklessly. Um, But half of my mind will always be sort of just thinking and churning it around, just like turning it into butter. That's really generous of you to share that process, really generous because, um, you know, it's lovely to know how how you're inhabiting it. And it sounds like it's a bit of a fix every day and you have to get your writing fix and it's hard to function otherwise unless you've had that fix. And, yeah, no, that's fascinating. I'll finish with this in BU. You may get sick of being asked this, but and you did certainly foreshadow it at the beginning of our chat. What's next for you in in writing terms? 
Well, I'm, I'm hoping to dust off these two previous manuscripts of mine and kind of really, yeah, see if they are seaworthy vehicles after all. And I have this idea for a fourth manuscript, which all I can say about it at this stage is it's something to do with postcards. I got delivered a postcard and I haven't actually talked about this postcard to anybody else. So this is exclusive. This is an exclusive. (laughs) Wow. Diving in podcast and any writer who's been on the publicity trail, you just find yourself saying the same things all the time. And I just always struggling to try and find a different way of saying things because I just really get sick of myself. Anyway. So the exclusive is I, we got delivered a postcard to our address and it's not to us, wasn't addressed to us. And it's, of course, there's no way of returning it. So it's this postcard to a complete stranger. And I just thought, I just loved it so much. I love this postcard. It sits on my bed and I look at it regularly and I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were more postcards? If, you know, I started receiving postcards from all over Europe to this wrong address and the name is like something like Michelle or it's a common name. So it's not like someone easily could be easily found. So, yes, that's really sort of been stewing in my mind, these postcards. Well, that's lovely because, you know, A, postcards are a little bit of a lost art and secondly, you don't feel like you're being too much of a voyeur because you don't have to open an envelope to read it. It's no, just there no. in plain sight. So that's, that's just delightful. Oh, I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much for your time, Imbi. I know that you're on a publicity trail and you're answering questions day and night, so we really appreciate you giving us some time. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Louise, and, you know, big hi to Virginia as well and to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thank you very much, Imbi. Darling,